Welcome to The End Game, a podcast about the positive aspects of aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I'm your host, Don Auction. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get on with today's show. Today's podcast is part two of my interview with distinguished scholar Margaret Margenroth-Golette. She is resident scholar at the Women's Studies Research Center at Brandeis University. Since the 1970s, she has been publishing articles and commentaries about how ageism in society limits the possibilities for men and women who no longer conform to our culture's ideals of youth and beauty. She is the author of several groundbreaking books, among them Aged by Culture, Ending Ageism or How Not to Shoot Old People, and her forthcoming book, American Elderside. Today we will be focusing on her work on what she calls the violence of ageism. Let's go to ageism for a second, because you were one of the earliest and strongest voices to call it out as both having a negative impact and also you've called it violent. Uh, Could you elaborate a little bit on what it is about ageism that you think gives it those characteristics? Well, I think um, it it depends on whether you think that violence means that, you know, people are going to actually hit you in the street. So I did actually have uh, an instance or two of that in that book, Ending Ageism, um, where a friend of mine going down the subway stairs was actually knocked over um, by a, a younger, stronger, healthier person who was wanted him out of the way. And he, he was a big guy, a white guy, a very dear friend of mine, and he had some knee operations and injured his knee. So, I mean, there is that level of violence. That's, uh, that's a little rare. Uh, I mean, we don't, we don't know how rare it is, because who, who, who counts? Um, at a certain point, though, older Chinese or women who look Chinese, women who were not necessarily Chinese, but when, co- when Trump, ex-President Trump, started saying that this is the Chinese virus, people started hitting or knocking down people who were Chinese, and particularly older women who are vulnerable in every way you can name, aside from being Chinese or Vietnamese or Japanese. I mean, people who knock you down because you're old and vulnerable and because Trump said it, it, was, it started in China and it was their fault, um, people who knock you down are unlikely, for those reasons, are unlikely to know uh, the difference between one Southeast Asian little old lady and another. Um, so th- there's that, that kind of violence. And I don't want to, uh, I don't want to actually I mean, it, it does seem ludicrous, but it is serious. But that's not really what I, what I meant when I started writing about ageism. I started writing about middle ageism, actually, in the 90s, because so many people in their middle years were losing jobs. And it was, it was very surprising to me. I mean, I grew up in a world in which a seniority of a certain kind was extremely uh, current and and seemed valuable. I mean, there were reasons to want to get older because um, my mother was, I should say, my mother was a unionized first grade teacher. So every year she her, her salary went up and she got more honor. And 
it, it, it went up because she, she had an extra degree, but it went up every year. I mean, she had a good union. So I thought, oh, the seniority is the norm. And in fact, for a long time in, in American economics, it was the norm. And then things started to change. First of all, we lost a lot of unions. I mean, that Ronald Reagan uh, began a process of eliminating unions and unions believe in seniority and corporate capitalism does not believe in seniority. They want their, the race to the bottom in wages is their major tactic for making profits. Just as, she said, not parenthetically, understaffing in nursing homes enables you to raise your profits. Pay the workers less. Um, so middle ageism um, was, never, was never called, except by me, middle ageism. But I thought, oh, these economists don't, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, if you talk about ageism in the workplace, like people will think you're talking about 70-year-olds or 65-year-olds. But this was happening to people who were, well, in Silicon Valley, it was happening to people in their 30s, 35, 40, 45. But in other, I mean, now we have a great deal more evidence of how Google um, uses middle ages and other major corporations um, use middle ageism to pad the bottom line. And of course, it's tremendously, it, it, it creates, it's a tremendously violent trend of capitalism. Because of course, if you lose your job or, and then you can't get another because you're too old, too young. So that was the language I was using. And it, now, I mean, that's, you'll read, you can read a lot about middle ageism, but just not under that name. Um, it's job discrimination by age. And it will come up if you, if you have a, a Google alert, for example, for ageism, you'll get a lot of, um, you'll get many more than you used to get. And it, it will be about, and it will tell you what to do, what to do, lie on your resume. I mean, there, there are a lot of cockamamie things Try to look younger, you know. So that means dye your hair. You know, I don't, but um, that's supposed to be helpful. Um, so that's how I that's how I slid into the violence of ageism. I, I, I guess I should just say another word about the violence. You lose seniority and the ability to even get a new job, except perhaps at a lower wage level or a lower title, or you go laterally, and that usually means you're earning less. You do that at the very time that your kids need help, if you have kids. They're either in college, or they're starting a home, or they're starting a family, and you would like to be able to help them uh, at least, you know, get through college, um, get, 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 or community college, or whatever. Get, give them a start, um, and, and you can't do that. And you can't save for old age. And that's the real violence that links to the nursing home situation. Because if you can't save for old age and, you, and something happens to you physically or, or cognitively, that's when you, middle-class person that you once were, may find yourself in a nursing home. 
Now, I think this story is not well enough known. And I can't tell you what a shock it is. I mean, that is psychological violence. And it is directly linked to the capitalist economy. Um, it's not the only reason people wind up in nursing homes. I mean, some people have been indigent or close to indigent all their lives. Um, and some people, if they weren't in a nursing home, they would be sick under a bridge. They'd be dying under a bridge. I mean, there are people who are grateful that they no longer are worrying about eviction and paying the rent. Uh, I mean, I don't know what percentage of people in nursing homes are grateful. That is the first time I have heard that connection between losing jobs at middle age and how that impacts the finances that lead to poverty and old age. And that's a very interesting connection that you just made. Let me switch gears just a little bit, because I noticed that you have been <clears throat> described as an independent scholar, which sounds like a really wonderful thing to be. Uh, what does it really mean? It means nobody pays you. Ah, okay. Um, I, I mean, the positive side of it is you work on the projects that you want to work on, it, you know, and I, I started, <laughs> I published my first book so late, and then I started my independent, my career of sort of independent scholarship in my 50s and then in my 60s and 70s. So I, I could go exactly where I wanted to go. I had no... I, I didn't need tenure. I couldn't get tenure. I couldn't have gotten an academic job after a certain age. That was just out of the question. Um, I, I wasn't exactly independent uh, in this sense. I always had an institution that wanted me, at least for a year or two. And so um, for a long time, I just moved around in the Boston area. With, I went to the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe, for example, for two years. Now, that was those were fascinating years. I, I decided I wanted to know more about the history of ageism in the United States. Um, and I, I wrote a few articles that, you know, they still get read and people really rely on them for knowledge about 19th century, different kinds of 19th century age relations and whatnot. And then I moved to Brandeis and I've been at Brandeis since the late 90s and I'll be there for another two years through the publication of um, American Elder Side. And so those, those have been wonderful connections. So even without, a, they're just research connections. No office, no, well, sometimes I've had an office, but I didn't want an office. I work at, in, at home and it's very quiet here. But I do have colleagueship and I do have people interested in my work who are all around me, and I do have a group of um, social issues uh, colleagues who read, have read, actually, almost every chapter of the book. So I have gotten wonderful um, comments and questions and, you know, eye-opening interest, and that's, that's really important for an independent. I have also seen you described as a public intellectual. Um, and what does that mean? Does that mean that you're, you, you use smaller words, fewer syllables? 
um, I, I think I think everybody who um, has a, an idea and writes uh, articles or books or whatnot should be a public intellectual. It means that you are not um, a narrow academic in the sense that you write for only your own scholarly peers. And um, and I think um, after I published my first book, um, it was called Safe at Last in the Middle Years. The title had some irony in it, um, but it, not as much irony as if I had published it 10 years later when I knew more about Middle Ages. Um, at any rate, at the same time that I published that book, the New York Times wanted an article for me, uh, from me about um, the exhilaration of being in the middle years. That's what everybody was doing and I was doing it also. Um, so it, it, having an article in the New York Times Magazine sort of pushed me rather gently, they paid, into thinking about myself as an advocate for whatever, whatever. Um, and I came out of a family in which um, we believed that advocacy was important. I mean, you protested about things that were wrong and you promoted things that were right and you tried to get a better balance between the two of them. So it, I, I felt my, I was very comfortable. And as my books became more critical of society and the economy, and the culture, um, I found that very comfortable too. So it's, it seemed to me that the academy was uh, artificially narrowing the audiences for very good ideas. I mean, I was learning, I, I was doing retraining in history and political science and economics and whatnot all through my 50s and 60s. And I felt, we, all these people should be talking to everybody. I mean, why not? It's not, it, it, it isn't hard to do. If you know what you think and you can talk, you can write. And it seemed, it seemed that easy to me. So, and I come from a family of talkers. You know, my son is a big, the whole family, everybody talks. People are fighting for airtime in my family, you know. And, and we talk cogently, and some of us talk like Oscar Wilde in full paragraphs. <laughs> I've tried. That's been my model. Um, so, so that's what I think. And and the world has come around to to my position. It's a great um, public intellectual is a great label for anybody who wants it, and it's out there for the taking. So nobody has to confer it on you. You decide. That's what you're going to try to do. And I, I say this to everybody, write a letter to the editor. That makes you a public intellectual. You know, write a letter for an op-ed column. That's the same, the same good thing. Um, and, and some, you know, and some people do it. Um, so not enough, but they do. It's great. And I've also been called, since you're kind enough to uh, <laughs> look up all these things, I've also been called a social philosopher. And I love that title also. I mean, I think social philosopher means you may be interested in epistemology or ontology or whatnot, but you're mainly interested in improving the, the, the social embrace, 
you're interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion. With inclusion, diversity and inclusion are goals, it seems to me, for equity. And, and what I would like, dare I say, is for people who are the residents of nursing homes to be equal to everybody else, that their lives be treated as important as ever, anybody else's life. This did not happen in COVID. It's not happening now, and it must happen. We need an utter transformation of the nursing home conditions. And we need this for, the, for their own sake, for the sake of the residents. We need it for our sake, for our uh, sense of responsibility, one person to another in this huge agglomeration that we call the United States of America. Um, we need to be responsible for the most vulnerable among us. But they are also, this is an early discovery, these residents, they weren't quoted enough in the news reports that came out. But they were quoted enough so that you could see how interesting and resilient and self-conscious and critical in some cases you know, um, here's, why does COVID give you the right to leave a filthy bedpan in my shower? That's what one guy said. It, it, it turned out he'd been a nursing home administrator before. So he didn't, he didn't think that even COVID, you know, it gave you any right to do that. But of course, it wasn't about rights. It was about, you know, understaffing. Possibly. I mean, we, you do find negligent people in any profession, and, uh, but if you have understaffing, it's guaranteed that you're going to have neglect and abuse and deaths. You have celebrated your 80th birthday, um, and I guess being an independent scholar means that uh, one advantage is that no institution can tell you you have to retire at a certain age. Um, do you see any signs yourself of slowing down or any desire to slow down? No, my fear is ageism. It, it's true that, um, that because I don't have tenure, well, if I had tenure, I couldn't be uh, um, asked to retire. I mean, I couldn't be, it couldn't be mandated that I retire because people with tenure can stay. But they, they are the victims of ageism often, meaning the chairman of their department will look pointedly at his calendar and say, oh, your birthday is coming up. Are you, what are you thinking about these days? You know? um, so I actually um, gave a talk at the American Historical Association because I had been collecting stories from academics about how they were being pressured to leave you can be, even if you have tenure, seniority is so feeble in, in these days as a, an ethos or philosophy of life that you can be pressured to leave. They'd rather have your space and they'd rather have the line item in the budget. Your high salary could pay for God knows how many adjuncts who don't have any rights, who don't have any health care, who, except where they've unionized, I mean, so, um, so I am alert for signs of ageism. And, um, and, you know, 
we'll see. I mean, it's hard to prove in, in your own case. You are just the one point, you know, the one point um, instance. Um, yeah, I, I, it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens when the book gets published. I mean, there's a certain amount of, but even there, it will be hard to tell. In other words, will people be interested in a nursing home story, even if it is an expose? Because they're so terrified of nursing homes and they don't really want many people, many people who are, you know, they readers, they read interesting nonfiction. Um, they, and I think my book is interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting page by page. I mean, I think it's a page turner myself. Uh, oh my God, did they really do that? You know, that sort of response keeps coming up and coming up. Um, my first editor was just, he said, I cried and then I got angry. So I, I think um, it should get some attention, but suppose it doesn't, you know, suppose people just, and then it won't be my age. It will be my topic. Margaret, if you could give older adults one piece of advice about the years ahead of them, what would you say? I'd say share your stories as widely as you can. Um, we have immense legacies to offer to uh, people who are younger, our children, our grandchildren, people who don't even know us. I mean, um, you have, there is, there is such a thing as wisdom. I don't think everybody has it, but everybody has experience. I think one of the things that Americans are losing is the sense of history. There's a, it's a very presentist time. And I, I, I have been in a way at fault myself because I, I write books about the present era. And I try to keep up with the levels of ageism as they change, as they worsen. But I've also experienced a, a lot of history and most people have. And you look at the people in the nursing homes and some of them, there are a lot of centenarians in nursing homes. One of the most interesting facts about them. And there are a lot of, for example, black centenarians. There are about, um, I think it was 12% in 2019, about 12% of residents were black and about 12% of centenarians were black. So, you know, they were equal in that sense. They were getting to 100 uh, in small numbers. Um, so what, what does that mean? I mean, uh, I quote uh, at one point a guy who was a colonel in World War II. And, um, and he said, oh, this is great. He said, you think not having another day wouldn't matter, but it does. I, I think so, you, but you don't even have to go back that far. A lot of people went through the Vietnam War, uh, Stonewall, uh, the feminist movement. I mean, these are values, interests, activism in some cases. Um, it actually, it, you know, you enrich these conversations by the fact that you actually live through those experiences and you have a different feeling about them than the people who are writing the histories. So I think, um, I think it's, um, it's better to be as up to date as you can be woke for example, in terms of where the culture is going, in terms of diversity and equity and inclusion. And, and, and of course, it, that must include uh, older adults and residents of nursing homes. But um, 
it, it, there's sort of this point of view, points of view that you have, values. These are legacies that I think some people value them and, um, and they try to share them. Sadly, they're not always sure that they're listeners. I mean, that's, uh, we, we need, in order for this to work, for people to take this advice and not become garrulous, you know, not to say everything they know about anything they know, but to focus it and, you know, and entertain and introduce people to the new feelings and ideas and whatnot. We need to have the whole culture change around us too. It has to be more welcoming to, um, to older voices and, and, and history. So thanks for the question. Okay. No, thank you. This has been a very enjoyable conversation for me. So Margaret Morgan Roth Gallette, thank you so much for taking the time to share your ideas with us today and for all the work you've done for decades in the fight against ageism. I, I appreciate it. You can reach out to Margaret Gallette on her Twitter handle at Gallette underscore MM. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The Endgame, at theendgame.substack.com. I'm Don Auction, wishing you all the best in aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I hope you'll join us for future programs here at The Endgame.